Awesome. Awesome. What a wonderful team we have of worship leaders, of pastors, isn't it? Incredible. Who lead us in the word of God, whether in singing or by hearing. So can you turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16? That's the text that the Lord in his providence has given us to focus on this morning as we make our way verse by verse through this book of 1 Thessalonians. I love it how as we make our way verse by verse, the Lord in his providence, as I said, decides what we're hearing, what we need for today. And this is obviously what you and I need for today because the Lord has it here before us. Make sure to have a Bible with you, please, and open it. And if you come regularly, which I hope you do, um, go buy a Bible if you don't have one or take one that's in our seat pockets and keep it. Um, you got to be looking at the word of God to see it for yourself. Um, I want you to see the words and I want you to understand what it's saying, not just to look at me and hear my voice. Um, and, uh, and if you need help deciding which Bible to get, we can certainly be of help to you. Um, so first Thessalonians chapter two, verses 13 through 16. I'm really excited for God's word to do its work in us today. Another thing I just want to mention, let this not become routine for you. Let this not be something that is just, uh, uh, that you, um, kind of just ex- expect, take for granted, um, granted, or whether you, um, maybe feel no urgency or passion or desire to hear God's word and to respond to it, or you're kind of just playing the part. Um, don't do that. Don't do that. Ask God genuinely to have his word have its effect on your life. Uh, there's no point um, to do anything but that. You, you don't gain anything by hearing it and by just kind of pretending like it's doing its work in you. Uh, really ask God in your heart that he would he would have his way through your word. You're not fooling or tricking anybody and really the only person that's losing is you. And so I, I pray that God's word does its, its true work in you. Let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Very simple passage, but extremely relevant and helpful. Verse 13, chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God... Which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators Of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen. As they did from the Jews. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. And drove us out. And displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as also, as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them. At last. What an incredible passage of scripture. And what we're seeing in this passage is very simple. It's the fact that the Thessalonians had the right response to the word of God. That's what we're seeing. Paul is commending this church because they had the right response to the word of God. He's thanking God for how the. Thessalonians responded to the word. That's why I've titled this message, The Right Response. 
Because that's exactly what's being said here. That's exactly what we're being told. That's exactly what Paul is telling these believers. Thank God you responded to the word like you did. That's exactly what he's saying. Paul's saying we are thanking God that you responded rightly. And at the end, he contrasts that with those who haven't responded to the word rightly. That's why throughout this entire service today, that's kind of been the theme. Responding rightly versus not responding rightly. And the consequences of each. Because that's the theme of this passage. That's the flow. That's the dynamic here. That's what Paul is saying. So how do we get to this point? I think it's extremely important that we see this flow of thought that brings Paul to this particular point. And because it's rather simple and straightforward, though very relevant, we have some time to look through this. So let's look at it here and go back to verse 1 of chapter 1. And just follow along as we think through Paul's train of thought here. Paul's flow of, of thought. Paul introduces him and his fellow workers. And he calls this church in Thessalonica in verse 1 a church, an ecclesia, a called out people, a chosen people, an elected people. And by the way, in verse 1, look at it. They're in God the Father and they're in the Lord Jesus Christ. The way in which this is set up in the Greek, God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, no article in front of the Lord. It gives a sense of these two things being equal. So this is a passage that can support the divinity of Christ. But at the same time, his point is here, you're a true church. You're in God, an inseparable union with the Father, and you're in Christ. Or you're in God the Father through also the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Father, you're in Christ, you're a church, you're ecclesia, you're a called out people, you're really saved. These three ministers to this true church, that's what's happening. Grace, grace and peace to you. May you keep on experiencing the grace of God, which you first received in your salvation, and the resulting peace that comes from knowing Christ. What an incredible introduction from Paul in just a, a few short words. He says in verse 2 that he's he and the rest of the ministers are giving thanks to God. They're constantly thanking God. These ministers, if you wonder what their posture is toward this church, it's one of thankfulness. They're just thanking God for who? For some of them? I'm thanking God for, for Joe, but not Sally. No, he says in verse 2, for all of you. All of you true believers. Some are at this point, some are at that point. Some need to grow more than others. But if they're in Christ, they're a source of thankfulness for the apostle. And he's thanking God and he tells us how. He tells us something about this thankfulness. Three things, actually. That he's thanking God in prayer. So how does he thank God? He does it through prayer. He also tells us that he does so when he's remembering some things. What? He's remembering how their faith in Christ has produced this work that, that evidences their true faith. This labor of love, this work of faith, this steadfastness of hope. He's thanking God in prayer as he is remembering the true fruit of salvation in the lives of these believers. Wow, you're truly saved. I'm thinking about your lives. You've proved it. And he says, knowing something 
I thank God through prayer when I remember something, knowing something very particular. What is it? That God has chosen you. You're part of the elect. Now you say, how does Paul know that these are elect people? They don't have a red dot on their forehead. Well, the evidences of their lives, the fruit of their lives. Jesus said, you will know them by their what? Fruit. You know, an apple tree, you can tell that it's an apple tree. Why? Because on its branches, there are what? Apples. Well, in the same way, a Christian, his life looks like what the word of God says it's supposed to look like, like Christ. So what are these evidences? I won't spend a ton of time on them, but verse five, we see this beginning of these evidences of election. First of all, the true gospel came to them. It wasn't a fabricated gospel through authentic ministers who didn't have any other motive besides seeing these people be saved. The first way to tell that someone is a believer is to ask, what gospel did you hear? Was it the right one? What kind of ministry did you receive? Well, he says it was the true ministry of the word. And so as we proceed, he says, you receive the word in the midst of much, much affliction. The word of God, the gospel of Christ, salvation in Christ became more valuable to you than a pain-free life. You were willing to suffer if you had Christ and salvation. And you became imitators. In other words, your life changed. So you receive the word. You're going to take whatever God wants to give you in your life because eternal life and knowing him is more valuable and your life changes. That's evidence of salvation. They were seen by others. Their other, their, their lives, their life change became evident to the people around them. They were evangelistic. They started to care about the Great Commission because they really believed that the gospel was true. And then what they did is they turned from, from idols to God. They repented of sin. And that's a true evidence of salvation, isn't it? An unwillingness to repent of sin and to turn to God and his ways. An unwillingness to do that is, is cause for concern as to whether or not you know the Lord. But they were willing to turn from sin and to serve God, the true God, and wait patiently for Christ. I'm going to serve God and I'm going to make it to the end and I'm going to patiently wait either till I die or till he returns and I'm going to hold fast to the end. Those are evidences of election. You live like that, something supernatural has occurred in your heart. Because not, no one lives like that unless the gospel has come and changed you. So, Paul then in chapter 2 verse 1 picks up Regarding his own ministry, the ministry of the three that have come to Thessalonica, you say, this kind of feels like it's coming out of nowhere. Well, it's really connected back to verse five of chapter one, right? Where he speaks of the authenticity of the ministry. He says, we came to you with an authentic message, with an authentic ministry. You responded rightly and he picks back up. For you know this about our ministry. What does he say about it? Well, look at it. He says it wasn't in vain. It produced fruit. We didn't come to deceive. Even though we suffered, we knew we were going to suffer again. Listen now, we were willing to suffer to get you the gospel. This wasn't out of impure motives to try to get some kind of selfish thing. We came to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Our appeal, verse 3, chapter 2, did not spring from error. We told you the right thing. Impurity. 
We didn't have false motives or any attempt to deceive. What do you think the, the people outside of the Thessalonican church were saying about Paul and his ministers? They are what? Deceiving you. People in Thessalonica who are believing the gospel, you're being deceived. Paul says, we didn't come to deceive you. We told you the real thing. By the way, that's what everyone who is opposed to the gospel or outside the church of God will tell you in terms of your faithful following of the Lord. They'll say, yeah, I know you're real big into this Jesus thing, this God thing, but you're being what? Deceived. That's not true. I remember before I came to know Christ, I'd gone back home to Chicago and was starting to change or when I had come to know Christ and I was start, my life was starting to change and I was following the Lord and I had 22 years of not following the Lord. So everyone in my life and my family had seen me for a very long time be one who could be the, the furthest thing from a faithful follower of Christ. And uh, when I got home, they said, well, that's good that you're religious now. Just don't be one of those extreme born again Christians. Right. That's a deception. That's what those outside the church say. But here's what Paul says, verse four. We were approved by God. We weren't coming on our own pretenses. We were approved called by God, entrusted with the gospel. So you know what we did? We spoke it. We're just obeying the Lord. You say whatever you want, but we're just, do we say anything that the Lord hasn't said in his word? We're just telling you the truth. That's what Paul says. God's our witness. We didn't seek glory from people, from you or from others. We didn't make demands that were unreasonable. But here's what our ministry was like. And this is what we learned last last week. Our ministry was like a mother. And it was like a father. These pastors, their ministry was like being a, a mother to a people. Gentle. Caring for the own, her own children. Providing nutrients. Protection. Longing with this love that's almost painful. Like we talked about last week. They didn't only share the gospel with these people. They shared their own souls in the Greek. We shared everything with you. But then he says they were like a father. They were like a father. They were examples of holy, righteous, blameless followers of Christ. They were examples. They led out in being an example Of what it looks like to follow Christ. They were examples to these believers. And then they exhorted them. They taught them the word. They exhorted. They taught the truth. They instructed. And not only instructed. But they encouraged. They came alongside these people. And then they charged them. They told them the consequences if they don't. To follow the word of God. To follow this word of God. And so now. After telling about the ministry. After being excited about what God has done in this church. After saying here's what we did to you. For you. And what we proclaimed to you. He picks back up here and says, and we thank God that in our genuine ministry, you heard this word and you responded rightly. Praise God. And this, listen now, listen close. This, uh, this discourse on this praise and what's happened and who they are and what they've done and how they responded. This is going to go all the way to the end of chapter three. Because in the very next section, he's going to say, and we were torn away. So we sent Timothy to check up how, on how you were. Timothy came back and he said this about you and praise God that you have been standing in the faith. You're true believers in Christ, that our ministry has had its effect in you. Praise God. Now we get to chapter four and he kind of changes course. 
At that point, it's kind of over the whole, I thank God for what he's done in you and who we are and the ministry we've had. And he kind of moves to chapter four, the same excited desire for this church, but he moves into then saying, okay, now that we've praised God for all that's happened, let me give you some instruction on how to live. He says in verse four, finally, then brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received the word, continue to walk in this way. And he's going to give them instruction from four on. It's the indicative and then it's the imperative, just like he does in so many other books of the Bible, right? Romans 11 verses of the indicative. What has God done in salvation in Christ for you? Chapter 12. Therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, what? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice and on it goes. Very practical instruction, 12 to 16 in the book of Romans. So he's just praising God in this section all the way up to the end of chapter three for what has happened in this church. They've had this true ministry. They were true ministers. They had they had a a great, honest desire to see these people be saved. God saved them. They're the elect of God. He's so thankful for how they responded to the truth. This is what's being told to us in these first three chapters. So we're in this section now where he's focusing on their right response to the gospel. And we see some particulars here. So here's going to be our points or our headings. Just things for you to hook your thoughts on. We're going to see two overarching themes. The right response, verses 13 through 14. You say, well, the title is the right response. And then the first point's the right response. Well, that's the main point here. Okay, the right response. So we're just going to see it. And there's three elements really to it. There's the conviction of the word in verse 13, mainly. There's the change of their ways. In verse 14, in the beginning, verse 14a. And then there's specifically the fact that they're continuing without wavering. And that's 14b. Conviction, change, continuation. This is the right response that Paul is praising God for in light of their ministry to the Thessalonians and how the Thessalonians responded to this word. But then... At the end of this, he contrasts it with a wrong response. And the wrong response is seen in verses 15 through 16. And there's the rejection of the word in verse 15. There's the resistance of God's work in verse 15b through 16a. And there's a resolution of Wrongdoing. They're resolved in their wrongdoing. Verse 16b. And really we could say at the end of this. That would fit. But we could say. They're going to receive. The punishment. Of their wrongdoing. But. It's kind of parallel here. In what we see. There's the right response. There's a wrong response. The right response. Conviction from the word, change of ways, continuing without wavering. The wrong response, rejection of the word, resisting God's ways and resolved to continue doing what you want to do. And that's why I read to you Deuteronomy chapter 28 earlier and pointed out to you verse 1 and verse 15. That's why I read to you Psalm 119 in the beginning, which depicts the right response to the word. And so the question could be here. Where do you find yourself? Where do you find yourself? Are you one who is responding to the word of God rightly? Who has become a true believer in Christ? Who has changed your ways? And who is continuing without wavering? Or are you one who has rejected the word? In the process of rejecting the word. 
Are you one who is resisting God's work in your life or in the life of those around you? And are you the one who is resolved in your wrongdoing? Because in that latter category, the wrong response, Paul here makes a clear statement at the end regarding the punishment that will be received for that response to the word. The punishment that will be received. So, let's look at the word today. Let's have some clarity about these responses. And I pray that even today you would respond rightly. Let's look first at the right response. The right response in verses 13 through 14. Paul says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that you, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. He is so thankful to God for this church because of how they responded to the word. This is really the same pattern that we saw in chapter one when he describes their election. And the first thing that he mentions here is their response to the word or the conviction of the word in verse 13. And I say conviction because The picture is that they took in the word of God and responded to it because they were convicted by its truthfulness. And so he says in verse 13, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. This is an incredible picture here. He says, we also thank God. We also thank God. He's giving, they're giving thanks to God. The verb here is present tense, which indicates a continual action, but it's also summed up in the word constantly or unceasingly. So he's almost saying that twice, which is even More emphatic. In this way, he's saying this. We are continually thanking God unceasingly. For something very, very particular. These faithful, authentic ministers are giving thanks continually without ceasing For these believers. He says at the end of it. For this. For this. For what? For this. And he's about to tell us exactly. What he's. Giving thanks for. Some commentators wonder whether this this. Refers backwards. And we constantly thank God for this, what he's just said. Or does it point forward? It seems like the antecedent would be too far away backwards. And so it seems clear from the context, especially the word that after the comma there for this, what that when you receive the word. And so he's looking forward. He's thanking God for this in which he's about to tell them. And by the way, who are they thanking? Who are they thanking? God. Why? Because God did the work. 
God's done the work in them. This has been no one else doing the work. It has been God doing the work in them. He's the one who graciously worked through these ministers in their faithfulness. They're not saying, and we thank ourselves for this. We've been faithful and we certainly thank ourselves. No, we've been faithful. We had the right motives. We obeyed the word in our ministry and we thank God that he worked through our faithfulness. He's the one who's done this electing, saving, sanctifying work. Only he can do it. If you believe that your salvation is attributed to you in any way, you've got the wrong idea completely. The Bible says you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're under the power of the prince of the air. You're blind. And God, in his work... Brings the sinner, the dead sinner to life. And then the sinner responds. Regeneration precedes faith. God has to make the dead sinner alive. And then impart faith. And so God has done this great work. What is he thanking God for? And he says that or because... Or the reason. So he's thanking God. Now he's about to give the reason for his thanksgiving. For their thanksgiving. What is it? That when you received. The word of God. Which you heard from us. Now listen. Because this is incredible. What is he saying here? Literally he's saying when receiving The word hearing from us of God. When you receive the word hearing from us uh, of God, you receive this word when you were hearing from us about God or you when receiving the word of God that you heard from us. The receiving here is not a taking in yet. It's a, you were hearing this from us. When getting, when it came to you, when receiving this word from us, hearing about God. In other words, when you were hearing this, when it came to you, that's step one. It came to you. When it came to you, you what? Accepted it. You accepted it. Now that's the idea of taking it in. That's the idea of taking it in. When it came to you, how did it come? By hearing. From who? From us. Romans 10. Faith comes by what? Hearing Hearing and hearing of the word of Christ. But how will they hear if no one what? Preaches. They came. They preached. They were faithful. These people heard. It came to them. They received it. In this objective way. And they accepted it. Faith came. They were saved. They were born again. You accepted it. You didn't reject it. You accepted it. When you heard the word. You embraced it. You grabbed onto it. You took hold of it. You took it in. You took it to heart. You took it to heart. Now, that's a good question for all of us. When you hear the word of God. When you hear the word of God, do you. Embrace it. When it comes to you, do you take it in? Do you take it to heart? Do you say, I got to change that. 
And so you repent specifically. You work on it. You focus on it. Or you meditate. You meditate on the word. That's what happens when you meditate on the word of God. Your eyes are open and you behold wondrous things out of his law. That begin to change you. We're being changed from one degree of glory to what? To another. Through beholding the word. When you accept it, when you take it in, when you embrace it, when you take it to heart, when you seek to understand it. Remember in Isaiah 53, Isaiah says, who has what? Believed our message. Who's taken it in? Who's taken it to heart? Who's understood it? Who's believed its contents? And the sad picture of Isaiah 53 is that Israel hadn't. And so he says this, you accepted it not as the word of men or not as the word from man, but as what it In the Greek, truly is the word of God. There's this conviction. This is not man. These are not man's words. These are God's words. And so I've got to pay attention to them. And if I stick with these words, they're going to have the effect that God says in my life. And that's the question. Do you really believe that? Do you treasure the word of God like it really is the word of God? Do you believe these are God's words to God's people? And are you convicted of that enough to take heed and to follow these words? Because you believe that so much. That's the question. You know, as as pastors here, we genuinely, deeply believe that God will honor his word. So if we will stick to it, and I mean tightly to it, we're just going to hold on to it like you're tubing on the back of a boat. And we're going to hold so tightly to it, and we're going to live so closely to it. And we believe that even if it doesn't look like it to outsiders or in comparison by people who might value other things, even if it doesn't look like it, we know that God will honor his word. He promises to do so. So if we'll just stick to it, he's going to honor it and he's going to bless it. And we're going to be right at the center of his will. And that's how this church is going to continue because he's going to honor his word. He promises. So we're just going to stick to it. You've got to have that conviction in your life. You've got to have that conviction in your life. It's not a word from men. It's not a suggestion. This is not like, hey, I'm going to tell you these words and you figure out whether or not you believe them, want to obey them, or if you and your friends have a better way of doing it. These are the words of God. They come with authority. They come with authority. He's the God who created you. You're not God. You didn't create everything he did. He says how things go. This is not optional. There needs to be that conviction. Most of the time we disobey God's word because there's pride in the sense that we are not convicted in humility that these are authoritative words from God. We believe our words, our thoughts have the same authority as God's words. Or our thoughts have the same authority in our lives as God's thoughts. That's not true. These words are authoritative. So they were convicted by them. You accepted these words because they were God's very words. He says this at the end of verse 13. Which is at work in you believers. Literally which is working in you who are believing. That's a wonderful picture, a wonderful way to think about it. Those are the, that's the words. Both of these are participles here, which is working, present active participles, which is working 
and you who are believing. It's not when who you believed before and now are not. But you who are, who have received this, accepted this word and are continually holding on to it. It's the word of God which is working now in you who are believing. You believed it. You're continually believing it. You accepted it. You're continually accepting it. It's at work in you now. This is the word of God. That's what it really is. And this is working in you now, the ones who are believing. That's a good question for you. Is the word working in you? Do you describe yourself as the one who is believing or the one who has believed? Oftentimes when people ask, how can I be assured of my salvation? One of the answers we give them is, first of all, what not to look at. And it's not to look at a point back in history as to when you prayed to receive Christ. Nowhere in the scriptures does one indicate to look back to a moment in time for your assurance. It tells you to look at your life now. Look at your life now. Think about when you were born physically. How do you know you were born? Do you look back at your birth? Your days in the hospital? No. You look at your life now and you say, I'm breathing. I'm aware. My mind's working. I'm eating. The best that I can tell, I'm alive. Well, this is the truth of your spiritual life as well. Don't stop looking back to when you received Christ. Look at your life now. Is the word working in you as you are believing? That's why Paul was so thankful for this church because they received the word. They had the conviction of the word. And you know what they did? Secondly, verse 14a, they changed their ways. For you, brothers, verse 14 became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. You became imitators. Literally, you became followers. But you know what's interesting is these Jews who had become Christians and even the Gentiles that are in Thessalonica had probably never met the Christians who were in Judea. I mean, it would be very unlikely that these Christians, this church had ever met anybody who had become a Christian in Judea. At least we have no indication. So what do you mean they became imitators? Well, Paul is affirming them. You're living the same life as those faithful Christians in Judea. You're living like them. You're living like them. You're you became the same way as those people. The faithful ministry there, undoubtedly they had heard about the Christians in Judea, just like you and I hear about other faithful churches around the world, around America. And you say, wow, you became like them. You're living like them. Or you see other believers whom you know. You talk to them and they're living faithful and you just want to be like them, you want to follow their example. He's saying you became imitators. You literally, the word is often translated follow. You were, you followed the Christians who you never met in Judea. In essence, you're becoming just like the faithful Christians around the world. But he says here of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Where did we hear that similar phrase? Back in chapter one, verse one. 
You're the church of of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, he's saying here, you became imitators of the churches of God in uh, in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. In other words, you became like other true believers, other true churches who are in a union with God through Christ. You became like those other true churches around the world. That's what he's saying. We can see the church in Judea in Acts chapters 1 through 12. Judea is the Greco-Roman name for the land of Judah. And it comes from a word meaning Jewish. And it was used of the uh, of Israel who returned from the Persian rule, the Babylonian captivity. You see, you guys know that story probably from the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, the land, it extended from Gaza to North Caesarea. And it extended a far different uh, distance west and a far distance east to the Dead Sea and to the Mediterranean in the west, the Dead Sea in the east. But this region of Jewish people known as Israel, whom the Lord had come to and who received the word, these Jewish believers who were now Christians. You're all the way now in Thessalonica. Paul is saying, You are living like them. Undoubtedly, he told these believers about those Christians when he was there. And so he's saying you're bearing fruit. Your lives have changed. You have become like them. And you should ask yourself this question. I know we don't want to compare ourselves to others in that way. Your value, your uh, your measurement shouldn't come from others. It should come from what the word says you're to be. But it is God's pattern to put you in the midst of other believers. And so in one way in which you can measure your spiritual health or your spiritual maturity is is to look around and say... The majority of the faithful believers around me and what they're believing and how they're living and how they're thinking and how they're growing in their attitudes towards the word, towards the church. Am I the oddball? Am I outside the quote unquote norm? The involvement, the relationships with others. And you can say the service, whatever it might be. And you can say, maybe there is something in my life that I need to change and take heed to. Because something doesn't seem right in my life in comparison to the other believers around me. But here specifically... Paul is saying that they became imitators in a particular way. What is it? Well, verse 14b, he says what this particular way is. For you suffered in the same way. Or suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So the third point here is that they continued without wavering. There was a particular way in which they were becoming like the Jewish Christians in Judea. What was it? Well, that they endured suffering. Paul saying, I'm so thankful that you responded to the word. Your lives changed and you endured suffering just like the Christians in Judea endured suffering from the Jews. You're, you're living just like them. You're enduring the suffering just like them. You're doing a good job at enduring the suffering. 
You're continuing without wavering. You suffered the same things from your own countrymen, meaning those in Thessalonica, as they did from the Jews in Judea. And so the Jews in Thessalonica, we can remember back to Acts chapter 16 and 17 when this church was planted. And we saw the picture of that in the very first week of this book when these three ministers came and planted this church. And we see that these Jews were dragging the new believers out of the house, dragging out Jason, followed them all the way to where? To where? Remember where they went right after? When they were the the people who were receiving the the word of God with all eagerness, testing it as they saw it, the Bereans, right? The Thessalonican Jews who were trying to offset these Christians followed them all the way to Berea and persecuted them there. And so we know that these that these believers here, Paul is saying, you followed their example. You're just like them in the way that you endure suffering, continuing to be faithful. We see the obvious persecution from the Jews in Judea all the way through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 12. You want to see what that persecution looked like. And these believers were faithful just like them. So. This is what Paul is thankful for. He is thankful for these believers. Who responded rightly to the word. They received the word with full conviction. Their lives changed. And they continued without wavering in the midst of suffering. And you should ask yourself, is this my life? Is this my response to the word? Is this how I'm living? Am I responding rightly? Well, as we head to the end of this, Paul contrasts this picture and we see the wrong response we see now the wrong response and it's very telling as to what the wrong response would look like so verse 15 he says referring to the jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. He says of the Jews first that they rejected the word of God. They rejected the word of God. That was their response. You say, well, what do you mean by that? How do, how do we see that? Well, look at verse 15. The Jews, they killed both the Lord Jesus, who is the what? Word. The word became flesh, John 1, and dwelt among us. His words are truth. Right? He provides the way of eternal life. He is the vine. No one comes to the Father apart from Him. The very one who was telling the Jews that their deeds were what? Evil. And yet to repent and to receive salvation. There's a theme here. They killed the Lord Jesus. Although we know that the Romans were involved, we see the scripture continually pointing to the blame being on the Jews. Though Rome is equally guilty, they were the, they were the heart behind the madness of killing the Lord Jesus because of their jealousy 
because of their pride, because of their desire to continue to live in their own way, be righteous in their own, in their own, uh, efforts. So they killed the Lord Jesus, these Jews, and they killed the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. What did the prophets do? They spoke the word of God. Why were they killed? Not because they maybe in their personality was unlikable. They were unlikable. But because the prophet heard from God and spoke from God. They killed the word of God in flesh and they killed those who spoke the word of God. Why? Because they didn't like what they were hearing. They didn't like what they were hearing. So they killed them. And then who else? They drove us. Paul meaning the apostles and their close associates. They drove us out. The Jews did. Why? Because what? Were they doing preaching the the word? These Jews rejected the word. They didn't accept the word. It was offensive to them. It didn't match with the life that they wanted. It didn't serve their desires. It didn't say what they wanted it to say. It didn't match their perception of God. It didn't accord with their own self-righteousness. It required repentance from them. It wasn't the type of religion that they wanted. You know how often, as Mike even said earlier this morning, how often people come and reject the word in the, his true church and what the word says. And they don't even stop and slow down their thoughts for a second to think. Pastor Chad talks often about when we're involved in sin, you got to stop and slow down your thoughts because everything's happening so quick. You're responding to sin so quickly. They don't stop and ask themselves for just a minute. Why am I walking out of here displeased and deciding to never return? It's not because you don't like the style. It's not because you didn't enjoy something. The real answer is you don't want to hear the word of God. That's where the rejection comes from so often. And I wish people would just stop and think about it for a second. That's what they did here. They rejected the word. But secondly, they resisted God's work. This takes it up another notch. Because of the rejection of the word, they displeased God. They displeased God. God is not happy with the way in which they live and the way in which they've rejected his true word. And we could, by the way, go back and point out all of the instances that we can see of the Jews rejecting, persecuting, and killing the Lord Jesus, the prophets, and the apostles, and we can learn so much there. I wish we had the time to do it. But moving forward, they displease God. So if you reject the word, are you pleasing or displeasing to God? Displeasing. And they oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Not only are they displeasing and, un and not loving God, but they're not loving others because they're resisting God's work. These Jews were actually trying to stop the word being preached to others. And so they are, in essence, opposing all mankind. They, they are, they are stopping men from hearing the word of God. I mean, you want to talk about God's judgment being upon you. 
But when you don't like the word so much that you'll even, listen, we're almost done, even in subtle ways, try to stop others from hearing it. Because you yourself are convicted by it. They're, in essence, opposing all mankind because they're stopping specifically hindering us, the apostles, from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. They're making others damned because they're hindering them from hearing the word. And so often we hinder others because we ourselves reject the word. And so what happens? Well, verse three, they're resolved in their wrong. I mean, the number three here, they're resolved in their wrongdoing. They're resolved in their wrongdoing. Verse 16b, so always to fill up the measure of their sins. What does that mean? Well, let's turn for just a second. We're almost done here. Genesis chapter 15. This is probably a reference to Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. Speaking of the Amorites, which more broadly is a more broad term for the Canaanites. And there's a reason why Israel had not gone, uh, would not be um, settled into the land yet with the new covenant. And that was because the Amorites, their sin was not yet at full capacity to where God is now ready to judge. He says in verse 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete or is not yet filled up. And so go back to first Thessalonians. The idea here is this, that the Jews had rejected the word of God. They had resisted God's work in the word coming to other people so as to oppose them and hinder people from hearing the gospel and being saved. And they were doing so, so in such a resolved way that they were heaping sin upon sin upon sin in their life as to fill it up to the measure in which God's judgment is ready to come. To where it is now filled and at the brim They are filling up the measure of their sins. And he's speaking of this as something that's already occurred. The judgment is there. And so in a sense, there's no remorse. There's no slowing down. It is sin upon sin upon sin. All because of the rejection of the word. And so he speaks of the result of this at the end here as we close. He says, but wrath has come upon them at last. Many questions by commentators as to what this wrath is referring to. It could be the destruction of, of Israel in the short term or the long term. I think here he's just referring to general judgment of those individuals who don't believe. Applied to the Jews and applied to every other individual who rejects the word of God. Who rejects God's word, who resist his work. And who are just heaping sin upon sin upon sin as to secure God's judgment in their life. And there's a point, a tipping point in the economy of God, which we don't fully understand, where there's no going back. It has reached its fill, its full. And judgment is sure. Judgment is sure. It has reached the measure of the sins, the fullness of sin. And wrath at that point then, listen close, 
Wrath at that point then is sure. He's speaking here in the aorist tense, past tense, for something that's going to happen in the future. He's speaking as if it has already happened. Wrath is already secured for these people. And that's a scary thought. And so the wrong response, the ones who reject the word, who resist God's work, who are resolved so much in their sin that they're securing wrath and judgment for themselves before the Lord. And so, church, as we close this morning, really here Paul is thanking God for a church who has responded rightly, contrasted with ones who have responded wrongly. And lest you think that this is just irrelevant to you because it's about the Thessalonians and the Jews, let me tell you that this principle is still true. This doctrine of receiving the word versus rejecting the word is a established, systematic, biblical doctrine that God gives us in his word. And so the one who rejects the word will receive judgment. The one who receives it will receive his blessing and be his true people. What's your response to the word? And what will your response be moving forward? Your whole future experience in this life and in the next life will be dependent upon how you respond to the word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And I pray for these people. I pray that we would be people who respond rightly to your word, who receive it, who change, and who endure. Rather than those who reject it, resist it, And in all of our disobedience, continue resolved in our sin. Let today be, for some, the first day of responding rightly. And for others, 